great thing that I was quickly going to share is that the disciples didn't know on Good Friday that that wasn't the end. When they saw Jesus die, that was the person they'd given up everything to follow. They had left what they'd known and walked with him, done life with him. They didn't know that that was the beginning of something awesome. That, Father, won't you come, Holy Spirit, in power mm. and in truth, mm. with boldness and courage, take over the plans, the words, bring your words, life-changing words. So, guys, I bless you to receive all that Holy Spirit has for you this morning. Mm. That even as we meet over these strange ways and means and times, you will connect with your Heavenly Father mm. in a new and refreshing way. Yes. Amen. Amen. Oh, okay. Yeah. We come on Easter to ask a question in the sense that it's been been sitting with me for a couple of weeks and in one sense working on that and, and, and trying to see my own heart and feeling about it and I've even been trying to find words for the question that's stirring inside me and in some ways I think the question is this, can our nation be born again, again? We, we have seen a nation literally for some of us in our lifetime, one phase, one stage, one one iteration, one life, literally end and a, and a new nation begin. And then we watched with concern. And the question is, can our nation be born again and again? See, on Friday, I spoke about the unshakable hope that we have for life beyond this life. And this truth anchors us. It strengthens us and says, according to Hebrews 2 verse 14, we saw that it liberates us from the control of fear, even now, not just for one day, but even now. So we begin to live courageous lives today. But then why is Easter also hope for this world and for this life? Romans 8 says that creation is groaning for the children, longing, waiting for the children of God to be seen for who they really are. And how does this affect the way I'm living right now as an apprentice of Jesus? And what does the gospel have to say to this world? What does Easter say to the world? And I'm, I'm really so grateful. When our president was making the announcement, I was praying during the announcement, Lord, please let him acknowledge and honor Easter. Because it is a time. And he, and he declared that it was a time of hope and recovery and rebirth. But in one sense, that's the message. But, but why and how? So can our nation be born again again? Pat Simcox, a South African cricketer from about 20 years ago and at my high school about 18 years ago, uh, wrote on Thursday night after President Ramaphosa's address to extend the lockdown. Some of the things he said, he said, I see a country desperate to, think, to get things back on track after too much disappointment in recent times. I feel that many of us as South Africans, in every sense of the word, will now realize that one group cannot survive without the other, that we are suddenly more dependent upon one another. I feel that life for any person, family, friend, or foe, is more sacrosanct than anything in the world. And then he finished with this. I feel 
we must lock down together in the knowledge that when our time comes again to pick up the reins, we will do so as one unified nation. Can Easter be part of this rebirth? Will we really get another chance? Can, can I get another chance? Can you get another chance? Can South Africa and our world really get another chance because of Easter? You see, I believe with all my heart, God is using this pandemic, which the enemy meant for evil, to awaken us to something incredibly good. So won't you turn with me to one of the favorite Easter stories. It's in John chapter 20. And we're going to pick up the reading at verse 11. John chapter 20 and verse 11. What have we got here? The, the shock and the trauma of the previous three days had defined every waking moment of the disciples. And they were utterly devastated at what had happened to Jesus. Most of them were dealing with guilt and shame and regret that accompanies their grief. It wasn't simple grief. They hadn't just lost Jesus. They were feeling terrible about their own role in what had happened. They had deserted him and denied him. And he, as Cindy said, all their hope, all their faith was centered on this one person. His teaching only mattered if he was around. Because they'd, under, they'd come to understand, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But in one long day of death that had dawned on the Friday, in the darkness before the dawn, the fate of Jesus had been settled by those who understood how dangerous Jesus is to their established order. And so he was mercilessly and relentlessly tortured before being executed by crucifixion. And the disciples were still too unafraid to be with him or to identify with him. And so in a further denial of their master, they'd left two good men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus from the Sanhedrin, to arrange his burial in the garden. And only one person that we know of had not left him before or after the tomb. Her name was Mary Magdalene. Mary had seen it all. His suffering, his death. How his mortal remains were removed from the cross. His burial in the tomb, which was hurried because there was no time to prepare him properly to wash him and get him ready. And, and so that great tombstone was, uh, his tombstone was rolled over the entrance. And then Roman guards were put there to seal the tomb. And so she had spent that silent Sabbath. Amongst the grieving and the confused and the regretful and the devastated followers of Jesus. And then early in the morning before sunrise, she and a number of other women gathered up the spices and headed for the tomb. They wanted to at least recover some sense of value and dignity for Jesus to properly prepare his body for burial. So they took their perfumes and spices and walked to the garden tomb. But the stone was removed and the body was gone. And it's likely that she was separated from the other woman as she ran back to find Peter and John. And they in turn raced to the tomb to find what, what was going on. And Peter saw the burial cloths that were still lying there. 
the headpiece where it should be undisturbed. But the body was not there. It was as though a chrysalis had, had, had left its cocoon. And John went in and believed, and, and he admitted later he didn't fully understand even what he believed, but he knew that yes, like a chrysalis, and what Mary had said was true, he's not there, but he didn't understand. Something remarkable's happened, but he didn't know. Verse 9 tells us that they didn't know that Jesus had to rise according to the scriptures. And so Peter and John returned to the city, and Mary has turned back again, left behind by the running men and separated from the woman. And so she finds herself heartbroken, alone. So she thinks in the dark. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked a woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't realize it was Jesus. And he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she'd obviously turned back towards the tomb. She said, Sir, if you'd carried him away, tell me where you'd put him. I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned to him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, don't hold on to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene, went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So Mary is alone in the garden. So she thinks. In her grief, she does not realize that this whole place is more full of life than she could ever know. And her grief at the bitter certainty of what she had seen. I mean, what she really, really knew that Jesus was dead was now made cruel by the confusion of what could only mean one thing. That for some unknown reason, the powers that be were not just content for Jesus to die, but now they must have control and ownership of his mortal remains. And so she doesn't recognize What's happening in the tomb? What's happening in the garden? You see, grief can make us blind. Especially when we're grieving those we truly love. But what was Mary missing? In her grief, she didn't see the undisturbed grave clothes. I mean, what could explain that? In her grief, she doesn't realize, I mean, hello, 
she's speaking to angels. And in her grief, she misses the first moment of the victory of life over death, of righteousness over sin, over good, over, of good over evil. She misses Jesus fully alive. In fact, when the literal turning point comes, when, the, when she finally turns, because as you read into the reading, you realize she, she saw Jesus saying, she didn't realize it was him, and then obviously looks back at the tomb. She's looking at where she thinks Jesus should be. Jesus is, is there in, in that tomb. He's not, he's not there behind me. He's not in a garden, a place of life. He's in the tomb, a place of death. But he's not in the tomb. He's standing right behind her, waiting for her to turn around, to open her eyes and to see the truth. And so with infinite compassion for her state, but with a sense of irony, but a like smile at the story, knowing that she would stop grieving if she could just turn around. She would stop grieving if she could just reorientate her sight. And so his voice speaks in a way that he knows, she knows, and he simply calls her name, Mary. And her ears tell her what her eyes had not seen. It's Jesus, her teacher, her mentor, her liberator. I mean, she had been under seven demons until Jesus set her free and is alive. I mean, really alive. And now all those confusing things will actually become part of her story. The very things that, that made no sense are now essential in the message. The stone removed, the empty tomb, the undisturbed, but nevertheless intact grave clothes, the angel who appeared and spoke. They only make sense because this is really him and he's alive and she's holding on to him like she's never going to let go. Yeah, Jesus has to explain to her, listen, Mary, I waited for you. You came in the moment. But I'm going to my father and your father, my God and yours. And so Jesus gets her to let go. And he says, you're going to have to let go of me at some point. Because you know what, Mary? You're the first evangelist. You're the first one who gets the commission, go and tell others. And soon they'll get the job too. But what I want you to do is go and tell the others. And so she becomes the first resurrection evangelist. And by the way, Jesus appearing first to a woman is powerful argument for the actual authenticity of the event as recorded. You see, if a first century Jewish writer intended to fabricate a credible witness, in that culture and context, he would never have dreamt of considering a woman for a fabricated role. The only reason this event uh, of witness is recorded according to the norms of the day would be because this is what actually happened. But let's pause and zoom out of this event. 
and look at a wider spectrum because this is a fulcrum. This is a turning point. This is a pivot for the whole of human history. You see, the original creation that God had made was undone in a garden. Sin had entered a world that God had said was very good. But 2,000 years ago, and hear me, the new creation began in that garden outside Jerusalem. See, the gospel is the story of recreation. It's the story of hope, of recovery, of rebirth. Creation begins in the gospel. The good news itself doesn't begin with the bad news that you're a sinner. It begins with the staggering news that we've been made by God, for God, in the glory of his image, to know, reveal, represent him on the earth. And God has sovereignly chosen, God has sovereignly chosen to accomplish his will on earth through people who walk with him. But then came the fall and the curse in the garden. And because of our sin as humankind, from origin back then to the present moment. And we share in this brokenness. The world is broken. It's unjust. It's sick. It's lost. And it's hurting. And we don't see that original creation glory evident in us or in our world. And we've been handed over to some. Believe me, only some. Just a tiny portion of all the consequences of turning away from God. And so redemption begins. Redemption is promised. God begins to gather a people. These people who will be stewards of his will. And his desire to redeem the world, to restore the world, and to bless starts with calling a people Israel, through whom he can send his redeemer. And they are taught in symbol and in prophecy and in actual words to expect an atoning sacrifice provided by God himself. And then we see this promised redemption revealed in Jesus Christ. He is a man whose identity is God. And he comes as God to reveal the nature, the essence, the heart of the Father. But he also comes as fully and truly human. His life revealing how God's kingdom, God's will, comes in everyday ways through people who will live through someone living by the Holy Spirit. And we learn that he's like us in every way, except he was without sin. And as we saw on Friday, he becomes our perfect substitute to atone for our sin on the cross. And we are called in repentance and faith to turn from self-serving and from self-saving, which we can't do. And to trust him alone fully for our redemption. That is redemption revealed. And then understand this. And this is the significance in the heart of Easter. That the new creation. Some of us think it's going to happen when Jesus splits the skies one day. No, scripture is so clear. The new creation has already begun. It began 2,000 years ago. That Easter morning. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation and he is the first fruits of the new creation through his bodily resurrection from the dead 
1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 2, uh, yeah, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, amongst others. And so by faith, we share in the grace and the power of his, resurrection, uh, of his representative death and resurrection. But here's the key part, key part. By the power of the Spirit, the gospel story is that the gospel continues today because by the power of the Spirit, we bring the healing, the freedom, the righteousness, the justice, and the hope of that new creation, that new world, by reproducing the ministry of Jesus, bringing the kingdom, representing him. And yes, a final day will come. And we are part of the last days because they began 2,000 years ago. But a final day will come when Jesus will judge all and condemn all who cause sin and do evil. And with the presence of sin removed, the power of the curse broken, heaven and earth will come together. So eschatology is the study of how it all works out in the end, the study of the end times. And we, we really are in those end times, not because there's a pandemic, but because Jesus introduced it. And there's an intensity both in terms of suffering, sin and evil, which must be offset by an intensity from the church in which we bring righteousness, healing, hope, which means there's an immediacy, there's an urgency. You see, Jesus declared that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's within reach. Within reach of a people of faith. So one day, yes, this kingdom's going to come with universal impact. There's going to be a shout and a trumpet. And Jesus is going to split the skies. But today and every day since that first Easter, the kingdom comes one person at a time, moment by moment, by faith, from faith to faith. We could comment about our nation in many respects. And, and I'm not here to speak for the many, many voices that need to be heard. We really do honor those who are in the front line of serving, caring, in essential services. And we pray with all our hearts, as Jackie led us in, as we did in the pre-meeting beforehand, for those who are truly vulnerable in our society. But in our own privileged context, I see at least three responses for those who, in a sense, whether you're still having to work or not, it's not the point, but in a sense, we're enclosed in this season of lockdown. The first response is that of like a squirrel. You know, we've, we've, we've tried to make sure we've either got enough in the bank or the pantry or we've got a garage full of toilet rolls or beer or whatever it might be that you thought you were going to need. And literally, we're just holding on to everything we have and we want to make it out of this deep winter, like a squirrel that just goes into the hibernation, climbs into a hole in the tree and waits for this thing to get past. And the problem with that is the underlying motivation is fear. Because it's literally just about making sure that you make it through. 
Another way we can respond is like that of a spider, a spider during the night. Everything else seems to be still. It's spinning a web, spinning a web. And if we're spinning a web, it's because we're hoping to take as much personal advantage out of this situation as possible. What would that look like? It would look like knowing and anticipating, getting my investments ready so that, so that when people start losing their homes, I can buy them for dirt cheap. Spiders web. You know, fortunes are made in war, they say. No, the underlying motivation is greed, selfish ambition. We don't want to be even remotely thinking like that. Another image is that of a chrysalis. It's confined for the moment, but it's just waiting to fly. Maybe in your heart you're praying for the opportunity and for a strategy to rejoin the unified nation, to genuinely invest in real change. And like a butterfly with new wings, you want to carry pollen from plant to plant, bringing life and hope wherever God gives you the opportunity to land next. So are you going to be a squirrel or a spider or a chrysalis? Which one am I going to be? And maybe even more important, who am I going to partner with? Where am I going to sow into a community that carries the belief that we can plant new life at the very heart and DNA of that community? I believe with all my heart that's what the church is meant to be. And so, even in the midst of lockdown, even in the midst maybe of confusion and grief and things are not the way you want them to be, this Easter Sunday we get the chance to hear his call. He calls you by name. And like Mary, to turn around and to recognize the one who's been speaking, seeing your sorrow, driving away the doubt, confronting your fear and your regret, calling you to a life of purpose in which you get to tell other people about what you have seen him able to do. You've heard his voice. He's called your name. It's time to turn around and believe. You see, Easter is not just a metaphor. It's not even just an idea. Easter, as we know it, has meaning because it's rooted in an event. Easter changes history because Easter is woven into history. Easter changes the world because Easter happened in the world. Death does not have the final say. Not over you. Not over me, not over our community, not over our church, and not over our nation. Lord, will you give us the grace to position ourselves in this time to carry the new life of the community that you have longed? Lord, roll away the stone that has kept us trapped 
and begin to pour by the ministry that comes from heaven with resurrection power, fresh hope, fresh expectation. And Lord, save us from being squirrels. And oh God, save us from trying to turn the suffering to our own advantage. Make us all that you want us to be in the kingdom of Jesus. We ask in your name. Amen.